The record breaking best seller now in paperback. A brief history of time from the Big Bang to black holes. Acknowledgements. I decided to try and write a popular book about space and time after I gave the Leo lectures at Harvard in 1982. There were already a considerable number of books about the early universe and the black holes, ranging from very good, such as Stephen Weinberg's book, The First Three Minutes, to the very bad, which I will not identify. However, I felt that none of them really addressed the questions that had led me to do research in cosmology and quantum theory where did the universe come from how did how and why did it begin will it come to an end and if so how these are questions that are interest to us all but modern science has become so technical that only a very small number of specialists are able to master the mathematics used to describe them at the basic ideas about the origin and fate of the universe can be stated without mathematics in a form that people without a scientific education can understand. This is what I attempted to do in this book. The reader must judge whether I have succeeded. Someone told me that each equation I included in the book would have the sales. I therefore resolved not to have any equations at all. In the end, however, I hope that uh, I did put in one equation, Einstein's famous equation, E is equal to mc square. I hope that will not scare off half of my potential relates. Apart from being unlucky enough to get the ALS or motor neuron disease, I have been fortunate in almost every other respect. This help and support I received from my wife Jane and my children Robert, Lucy and Timmy have made it possible for me to lead a fairly normal life and to have a successful career. I was again fortunate in that I chose theoretical physics because that is all in the mind. So my disability has not been a serious handicap. My scientific colleagues have co without exception, exception been most helpful. In the first classical phase of my career, my principal associate and collaborators were Roger Penrose, Robert Garrosh, Brandon Carter and George Ellis. I am grateful to them for the help they gave me and for the work we did together. This phase was summoned up by the book The Large Scale Structure of Space Time, <coughs> which Ellis and I wrote in 1973. I will not advertise relates of this book to consult that Work for further information, it is highly technical and quite unreadable. I hope that since then I have learned how to write in a manner that is easier to understand. In the second quantum phase of my work since 1974, my principal collaborators have been Gary Gibson, Don Page and Jim Hartle. I owe them to a lot of them and to my research students who have given me a great deal of help in both the physical and the theoretical senses of the world. Having to keep up with my students has been great stimulation and has, I hope, prevented me from getting stuck in a rut. I have had a lot of help with this book from Brian Witt, one of my students. I got pneumonia in 1985 after I had returned the first draft. I had to have a tracheostomy operation which removed my ability to speak and made it almost impossible for me to communicate. I thought I would be unable to finish it. However, Brian not only helped me revise it, 
he also called me using the meditation program called the living center which was donated to me by Walter Walters of words plus included in Sunnyvale, California. With this, I can both write books and papers and speak to people using a speech synthesizer donated by Speech Plus. Also of the Sunnyvale, California, the synthesizer and a small personal computer were mounted on my wheelchair by David Mason. The system has made all the difference. In fact, I can communicate better now than before I lost my voice. I have had suggestions of how to improve the book from a large number of people who have been uh, preliminary versions, in particular Peter Guzzardi, my editor and abandoned books. Send me pages and pages of comments and queries about points he felt I had not explained properly. I must admit that I was rather irritated when I, when I received this great listing of things to be changed. But he was quite right. I am sure that this is a better book as a result of his keeping my nose of the grindstone. I am very grateful to my assistants Colin Williams, David Thomas and Raymond Laflame, my secretaries Judy Fella and Ralph Cherry Blinson and Sue and my team of nurses. None of this would have been possible without the support for my research and medical expenses that has been supplied by one million and college, the Science and Engineering Research Council and by Liverpool MacArthur Field and Ralph Smith Foundation. I am very grateful to them. Stephen Hawkins, 20 October 1987. Introduction. Introduction. We go about our daily lives understanding almost nothing of the world. We give a little thought to the machinery that generates the sunlight that makes life possible. To the gravity that glues us to an earth that would otherwise send us spinning off into space. Or to the atoms of which we are made and on whose stability we fundamentally depend. Except for children who don't know enough not to ask the important questions. Few of us spend much time wondering why nature is the way it is. Where is the cosmos came from? Or whether it was always here? If time will one day flow backwards and effects precede causes, or whether there are ultimate limits to what humans can know, there are even children, and I have met some of them who want to know what a black hole looks like, what is the smallest piece of matter, why we remember the past and not the future, how it is if there was chaos every there that there is apparently order today and why there is a universe. In our society, it is still customary for parents and teachers to answer most of these questions with a shrug or with an appeal to vaguely recall religious percepts. percepts. Some are uncomfortable with the issues like this because they so vividly expose the limitations of human understanding. But much of philosophy and science has been driven by such inquiries. An increase in number of adults are willing to ask questions of this sort and occasionally they get some astonishing answers. Equidistance from the atoms and the stars, we are expanding our exploratory horizons to embrace both the very small and the very large. In the spring of 1974, about two years before the Viking spacecraft landed on Mars, I was at a meeting in England sponsored by the Royal Society of London to explore the question of how to search for extraterrestrial life. During a coffee break, I noticed that a much larger meeting 
washing team held in an adjacent hall which out of curiosity I entered I soon realized that I was witnessing an ancient rite. The investitor and the new fellows in the Royal Society, one of the most ancient scholarly organizations on the planet. In the front row, a young man in a wheelchair was very slowly signing his name in a book that bore on its earliest pages the signature of Isaac Newton. When at last he finished, there was a stirring ovation. Stephen Hawkins was a legend even then. Hawkins is now the location professor of mathematics at Cambridge University, a post once held by Newton and later by P. Uh, M. Dirac. To celebrated explorers of very large and very small, he is their worthy successor. This Hawkins' first book for the non-specialist hold rewards for many kinds for the lay audience. As interesting as the book while raising content is the glimpse it provides into the workings of its author's mind. In this book are lucid revelations on the frontiers of physics, astronomy, cosmology and covering. This is also a book about God, or perhaps the absence of God. The word God fills these pages. Hawkins embarks on the quest to answer Einstein's famous question about whether God had the choice in creating the universe. Hawking is attempting, as he explicitly states, to understand the mind of God, and this makes all the more unexpected the conclusion of the efforts, at least so far, a universe with no empty space, no beginning or ending time, and nothing for a creator to call Satan. Carnal University. This was a small introduction by Carl Sagan, Cornell University, Ithaca, New York. A brief history of time from the Big Bang to backwards. Number one, our picture of the universe. A well-known scientist, some say it was Bertrand Russell, must give a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the Sun and how the Sun, in terms, orbits around the center of the vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture. A little old lady at the back of the room called up and said, What do you have to tell what what do you, what do you have told us is rubbish? The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, What is the tortoise standing on? You are very clever young man, very clever, said the old lady. But it startles all the way down. Most people would find the picture of our universe as an infinite tower of tortoise rather ridiculous. But why do we think we know better? What do we know about the universe and how do we know it? Where did the universe come from and where it is going? Did the universe have a beginning and if so, what happened before then? What is the nature of time? Will it ever come to an end? Recent breakthroughs in physics made possible in part by fantastic new technology subjects answers to some of these long-standing questions. Someday these answers may seem as obvious to us as the Earth orbiting the Sun, or perhaps as ridiculous as a tower of tortoises. Only time, whenever that may be written. As long ago as 340 BC, the Greek philosopher Aristotle in his book On the Heavens was able to put forward two good arguments for believing 
that the earth was a round sphere rather than a flat plate. First he realized that eclipses of the moon were caused by the earth coming between the sun and the moon. The earth's shadow on the moon was always round, which would be true only if the earth was spherical. If the earth had been a flat disk, or the shadow would have been elongated and elliptical, unless the eclipse always occurred at the right time when the sun was directly under the center of the disk. Second, the Greeks knew from their travels that the north star appeared lower in the sky when viewed in the south than it did in more northerly regions. Since the north star lies over the north pole, it appears to be directly above the observer at the north pole. But to someone looking from the equator, it appears to lie just at the horizon. From the difference in the apparent position of the North Star in Egypt and Greece, Aristotle even quoted and estimated that the distance around the Earth, is, Earth was 400,000 stadia. It is not known exactly what length a stadium was, but it may have been about 200 yards, which would make Aristotle estimate what it is the currently accepted figure. The Greek even had a third argument that the Earth must be round for why else does one first see the sails of a ship coming over the horizon and only later see the hull. I also thought that the Earth was stationary and that the sun, the moon, the planets and the stars moved in the circular orbits about the Earth. He believed this because he felt for mystical reasons that the Earth was the center of the universe and the circular motion was the most perfect. This idea was elaborated by Ptolemy in the 2nd century AD into a complete cosmological model. The Earth stood at the center and surrounded by eight spheres that carried the moon and the sun. And the, sun. the stars and the five planets known at the time, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. In figure 1.1, the planets themselves moved on a small circle attached to their respective spheres in order to account for their rather complicated observed paths in the sky. The outermost sphere carried the so-called fixed stars which always stay in the same position relative to, to each other but which rotated together across the sky. What lay beyond the last sphere was never made very clear but it certainly was not part of mankind's observable universe. Ptolemy's model provided a reasonably accurate system for predicting the positions of heavenly bodies in the sky. But in order to predict these positions correctly, Ptolemy had to make an assumption that the moon followed a path that sometimes brought it, brought it twice as close to the earth as at other times. And that meant that the moon ought sometimes to appear twice as big as the other times. Ptolemy recognized this flaw, but nevertheless this, his model was generally Although not universally accepted, it was adopted by the Christian church as the picture of the universe that was in accordance with the scripture. For it had the great advantages that it left lots of room outside the sphere of fixed stars for heaven and hell.